This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham joined me to talk about federal politics. Then, social researcher and writer Rebecca Huntley joined me in the studio to talk about her new quarterly essay, Australia Fair, Listening to the Nation. Rebecca and I also discussed the possibility of a revival of social democracy in Australia. Then, Finally, Dr Andrew McGregor, a lecturer in French studies at the University of Melbourne, joined me in the studio to talk about the life and cinematic legacy of French New Wave auteur Claude Chabrol. Andrew and I discussed Chabrol's work ahead of the Melbourne Cinematheque season, The Unblinking Gaze of Claude Chabrol. Hey there, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Morning. How's life? Pretty good, thanks. That's Pretty good. Good, good yep. to see you. Now... There's a lot that's been happening in federal politics and, um, well, it's hard to know where to start, but I do believe you have a preference. So let's start with that in terms of, because we've seen obviously over the last week and a half to two weeks, a lot of discussion around the political landscape particularly the far-right or extreme-right views that exist in Australia in certain pockets but also that exist in our parliament to some extent, particularly Fraser Anning um, and One Nation Party have voiced views that are pretty ridiculous, um, talking about uh, Islam and Muslims in particularly derogatory fashion um, with and, and a lot of attention has been paid to whether this is in fact inciting some form of hate in the community and whether that does contribute or not to individuals such as the shooter that we saw in New Zealand in Christchurch. Uh, where, where, where are we at really with the right in uh, Australian politics in particular? Well, I did want to talk about it, thanks, Amy, uh, because I'm pretty worried, actually. Um, I'm normally pretty optimistic about the future of Australia, but this is the most concerned I've been for some time. And and the reason is simply that uh, the right is on the rise, and uh, these guys... They're not ridiculous, actually, as you say. They're they're a little bit more... No, the things they say are ridiculous. You shouldn't treat them with... You know, they're just fringe loonies. No, and and that's the point I'd make. We shouldn't treat them as fringe loonies, actually, because it's far more serious than that. And so I think it's time to take this stuff as seriously as they take it, which is very seriously indeed. And we need to look at what's happened to Australia's public sphere. It's fragmented. It's now very difficult for us to have conversations between left and right. And what's happened, I think, over on the right side of politics has been a a quite rapid radicalisation. And this is not just the far right. We're not just talking about Blair Cottrell and the neo-Nazis here. We're talking about the radicalisation of the discourse and the public sphere. Uh, And it's really infiltrated well into the Liberal party and and the conservative forces so uh, if you were to turn on sky news after dark on any particular night you're going to see views that are in lockstep with the alt-right really and and um, if you were to open up the herald sun and read some of andrew bolt's columns you'll see articles that he's written uh, that are absolutely 100 percent in agreement with some of the views put forward in the manifesto by the christchurch shooter so we we're in a very very serious situation i think in terms of hate speech in Australia and I think we're only just now waking up to it and and I think the discomfort of many um, particularly in the Liberal Party has been that the, they've really been asleep on this they've watched the right take over their party to the degree where it's very hard for them now to to tamp down on some of these views. 
Well, that's true. And I think some people have highlighted concern around the New South Wales result, given that we now have uh, David Linehelm moving from the Federal Senate to the Upper House in New South Wales, as well as Mark Latham. Yeah, absolutely. The New South Wales election was a really interesting litmus test there. So on the one hand, we had the re-election of the moderate Liberal Gladys Berejiklian on an infrastructure program. Some people have compared her to Daniel Andrews, I think, not particularly accurately, but she certainly has a large program of infrastructure on the go in Greater Sydney, and I think voters did reward her for that. Uh, But out on the fringes, we've seen a collapse in the vote of the National Party, particularly in the regions, and that vote has gone to far-right parties. The one Nation Party has got Mark Latham up in the Senate, as you said, or the, the New South Wales Upper House, and the Shooters, Farmers and Fishers Party, uh, which people seem to have forgotten, is quite hard right as well. Uh, Robert Borsick, the leader there, uh, has a long history of uh, gun lobby politics, and he's extremely pro-guns. Um, and just today, we had a, a very, very interesting investigation released by Al Jazeera, actually, where they've gone undercover in the US and sprung James Ashby, no less, Mm. um, Pauline Hanson's senior political advisor in One Nation, going to the US and soliciting donations from the National Rifle Association over there. So the far-right politics from America is infiltrating Australia and it's having a genuine impact on our politics here. And I'm really concerned about that because if we just talk about Christchurch very briefly, I don't want to talk about it because I know you did discuss it on the show last week too much, but I just wanted to, to point out a few very worrying truths about that. Firstly, the the Christchurch shooter was an Australian. He was radicalised in part in Australia. He we now know he had uh, uh, documented connections of the Australian far right, including that he was a huge fan of Blair Cottrell, um, the noted Australian neo-Nazi. And why this is worrying is because Blair Cottrell has been given multiple platforms on the Australian media in recent years, including on the ABC and on Sky News. And so we're really seeing that these views, which once were beyond the pale, you know, which once were seen as uh, completely outside the bounds of a normal political discourse, are now very much in play. And I think this is emboldening the far right in Australia. And the final thing I'd I'd, want to say is that Uh, People in Australia's Islamic community have been warning about the rise of Islamophobia for some time now, and some of them are very worried indeed. They're worried that there's going to be violence in Australia. Yes, and there are certainly real threats made against those in the Muslim community regularly, and it certainly is an issue. If you talk about the media and their role, uh, a lot of people have highlighted case studies. As you've said, there's Sky News, there's also Channel 7's breakfast television program, uh, where we saw David Koch attempt to interview Pauline Hanson after the attack, and uh, a lot of people have criticised him and or praised him for it. But then we saw Pauline Hanson and actually withdraw from her regular spot on Sunrise because she had probably an increased level of criticism she hadn't received before. Uh, That's probably a bit of a concern that she hadn't received that level of scrutiny. Well, let's face it, I mean, she had a red carpet right at Sunrise and they played a direct role in her rehabilitation in Australian politics, you know, whether it was putting her on the dancing show or then putting her on Sunrise and paying her during her political campaigning. 
Um, so they've they've been instrumental, I think, in the rehabilitation of Hanson and of One Nation to respectability in Australian politics. But it goes further than just the media, of course. The Liberal Party are deeply connected with One Nation now, to the degree where I think it's almost certain that, at least in Queensland, the LNP up there will definitely preference One Nation ahead of Labor all over Queensland. Um, and perhaps that's not that surprising because the right of the LNP in Queensland is is not that different from One Nation or many political views. So if you look at some of the, the people in the LNP, like George Christensen, for example, um, some of the, the right-wingers... Um, in the Liberal Party, even in Victoria, like Michael Suka, these are people with hard right views uh, that are not a million miles away from One Nation and from the far right. And and so you might expect them to preference One Nation, and I think that's what will happen. Yes, and um, you mentioned before shooters and fishers, and uh, they are the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, and we saw a concerted effort at the, Na- the New South Wales level, given the fish kills that we saw, the great problems with the Murray-Darling, um, that was a huge, huge backlash, and the Nationals had massive swings against them in key seats in the rural areas of New South Wales, to the extent that they lost two seats to the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party, and there was a campaign by uh, a, a local around that area who basically said, vote for anyone but the Nats. He didn't really care who, but he thought that they weren't representing farmers. They were representing mining and coal and coal seam gas interests above farmers and not caring enough about climate change because farmers certainly understand at the moment just how much of a threat this is to their livelihood as well as to the nation. Uh, So we've seen very, very recently, in fact, this morning, uh, cabinet ministers discussing this idea of subsidising baseload power generation and not having a particular preference for any type of power, though we know that there is a strong preference in a because in national seats, many of those seats are areas that uh, directly have mines and where employees are employed by coal. So this has become a bit more of an issue given the nationals have done so poorly. Is it surprising that the nationals are pushing for more Uh, concessions from the Liberal Party at the federal level given the New South Wales result and also that those concessions should be around things like potentially coal? Well, no, it's not surprising because the National Party is beholden to the fossil fuel lobby, unfortunately, um, and senior leaders within the National Party are former fossil fuel people, like Matt Canavan's a good example, um, you know, deeply aligned with the fossil fuel sector. Um, I don't... I haven't been out to Western New South Wales for some time, so I'm hesitant to kind of commentate about what's going on out there. But The Guardian's Gabrielle Chan does do a very good job of covering rural politics. Well, we spoke to Gabrielle actually recently about country politics. Exactly, Amy. So, I mean, I defer to her on that. But there's no doubt that the Nationals are losing their credibility uh, in rural Australia, I think. And it's because of issues like water in particular, where they seem to have been incapable of coming up with some kind of... Uh, well, really incapable of grasping the reality, which is that uh, you can't just keep giving water away all the time and expect for these rivers to not dry up. And that, and that's ultimately the problem with the Murray-Darling Basin, is that the water's been 
it's been allowed to be given away you know so uh, there's not, uh, even leaving aside all of the illegal pumping that's going on all of those catchments are over allocated to irrigators and that's why there's no water down further down the, the streams um, that's a very difficult issue for the for the nationals to deal with because uh, one of their key interest groups of course are irrigators and, and uh, broadacre farmers so it's very very difficult for them to go up against their own base and to say well guys actually if we want the rivers not to die then we have to pump less water it's kind of a it's a metaphor for the difficulty of climate change politics in general it's challenging all of our old preconceptions about how politics needs to be run yes and as we as we know in country areas each area is unique and not all farmers are homogenous. They don't all have the same views. Some um, do have, you know, huge uh, concerns around water. For others, it's around uh, climate and drought. Sometimes it's both. So people are motivated by various issues depending on their individual circumstances and their community circumstances. Um, but it certainly is a concern and Tony Windsor, former in- independent from that area, has been raising the alarm around coal seam gas and also water and irrigation in our major food bowls in New South Wales and thinks this is a major issue and that the Nationals aren't necessarily representing people particularly well. No, I, I agree with that. Uh, you know, I don't think the Nationals are representing people very well, even in those traditional kind of agricultural issues that are meant to be their lock. You know, they've, I think, shown themselves to be very poor representatives of those communities. Uh, and we, you know, and that's before we even mentioned Barnaby Joyce and all the shenanigans that went on around him. But, but there's been a fundamental inability, I think, to to look at the nuance of the issue. And and many nationals have also been caught up in the kind of broader culture wars that their liberal colleagues have been so exercised with. And I think that that is that's distracted them from what should be their core business. Exactly. Now, let's talk about something that is relevant to individuals. Uh, we've mentioned on this program many times the fact that wages are flat. In fact, in some cases, they're going down or just being stagnant. And we've seen uh, many concerns around insecure work and a lack of full-time work being available. Uh, Labor has Federal Labor has come up with this plan to talk and has announced today formally this policy plan for a living wage Um, it seems that there's not a huge amount of concrete detail around how this would all work but it would um, to some extent involve the Fair Work Commission it would not um, get rid of the Fair Work Commission and their role do you think this is kind of tapering at the edges and not necessarily going to get to the type of reform Labor might aspire yes in a nutshell, yes, I, I, th- I think it is tinkering at the edges. Uh, one reason is because the Fair Work Commission has been comprehensively stacked by the Liberals, so it's going to be very hard if Labor wants to rely on the independent umpire when the independent umpire has been shown to be pretty pro-employer uh, in a lot of its decision-making. Labor can change the rules that the umpire has to adjudicate, and I think they are going to do that. And that may well, you know, improve the kind of uh, decisions that the Fair Work Commission makes in terms of wages. Um, But what we're not talking about here is a wholesale reform of Australia's labour market to increase the bargaining power of workers. And that's, I think, what's going to be needed if we're going to actually negotiate pay rises from our various bosses. It's very difficult for workers to, to even to go on strike in this country, let alone to negotiate with powerful employers. 
Um, there's a strike going on at the warehouse and distribution centre for Chemist Warehouse right now up in Preston. Um, that's a very bitter dispute. Um, the bosses there are dumping manure next to the, the protesters to stop to you know try and smell them out, stink them out. You know, um, industrial warfare, the the industrial battleground hasn't gone away in this country. It's just that the bosses have been winning for a long time now, and that's why wages are so low. So with unemployment at five percent, you know I don't think we're we're really at a at a tight labour market yet. So it's not like we're in a situation where bosses are finding it difficult to get enough workers, and that's really what would lead to a rise in wages because bosses would have no no choice. Beyond that, we need to strengthen the ability of labour to collectively organise and to and to negotiate wage rises, and we don't have that yet. Yes, well, the union movement has called for a living wage to be set at 60% of the median full-time wage. Um, but there is this whole discussion that's largely been centred around full-time workers. And the fact is that not everyone can work full-time. They might be caring for children or elderly parents. Um, they may not be able to get full-time work. They may be casualised in a casualised industry. So there are a whole range of issues where Labor seems quite fixated on full-time workers and uh, not enough attention is paid to those who cannot gain full employment or do not need to or can't. Um, but the one issue that seems to be kind of sticking around this issue of unemployment and employment figures is that one is considered employed if one works an hour a week. So that, you know, our unemployment figures are not actually particularly accurate and do not have an entire picture of the workforce of Australia. Um, I think we should be careful of that old canard. You know, it's something that's always wheeled out, you know, oh, you're considered employed if you're employed one hour a week. Uh, the reason Australia uses that statistic is it's the international standard set by the International Labour Organisation. So it's about being internationally uh, comparable with yeah, our statistics. that's fine. Yeah. But you need to be aware of who is captured in that data in order to make informed policy choices that aren't just focused on one type of worker. So we do know that underemployment is rife in Australia and we do know that casualisation is at its worst ever rate. So I'm certainly not trying to diminish the problem here. Um, and, you know, and there are other measures like underemployment and total number of hours worked actually is my favourite measure of this. The ABS keeps a, a good record of that. Um, so that gives you a, a very granular estimate of, of the work going on in the economy. Um, and the problem here, as I was saying again, is that you know this is an imbalance of power between labour and bosses, um, and, and casualisation is a really good example of that. So um, yes, there are people who who um, like the flexibility of part-time work and and who can't work full-time. Uh, but they're also exactly the sort of people who are least likely to be in a union to enjoy any kind of um, proper enterprise bargaining agreement in their workplace. They're the most likely to be on the award. Um, and, you know, they're also probably the people who've recently seen their penalty rates stripped away by the Fair Work Commission, the very same Fair Work Commission that Labor's relying on to, to raise minimum wages and a living wage. So it's a complex area, you know, and in part Labor has made a rod for its own back because this is, in fact, Labor's industrial license regulations. Um, this is all Julia Gillard's laws that, that we're using here. Um, the, the coalition's been quite clever in using Labor's architecture then and stacking it with their own people to be able to drive down wages. Uh, but, you know, um, 
I mean, I'm a member of two unions and I've been involved in a bit of organising in my time. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to get people uh, to go to protests, let alone to think about striking for obvious reasons. You know, they've got livelihoods. So exerting power against employers is, is a very slow and a very risky endeavour. And so, and that's why bosses often win. So, you know, short of... Um, you know, wholesale reform. I, I don't think Labor's living wage is coming anytime soon, basically. Well, workers need some leverage and they don't really have legal leverage, particularly in protests. No, they really don't. I mean, you know, we saw that in the New South Wales train drivers dispute where that's a case where the train drivers are heavily unionised. They were well organised. They had the ability to shut down the train network. Um, and then the government went to court and said, well, you can't go on strike. You'll shut down Sydney. That's bad for the economy. And so the strike was legally cancelled by the Fair Work Commission. And, you know, this is a problem across the economy, actually. And, and we know from history that the one sure way that Labor can actually exert power is to withdraw it, right? So the one thing that, that bosses need ultimately from their workers is their labour, their labour power. This is basically standard marks, right? Um, and so withdrawing it is one way that, that workers can actually negotiate. And at the moment, it's very hard for Australian workers to legally withdraw their labour. It absolutely is. And it's something that we've discussed previously in a bit more depth. So if anyone's interested, I can put a link to that. Uh, thanks so much, Ben, for coming in and chatting federal politics and uh, giving us an update on the landscape that um, is ever-changing in terms of policy and uh, politicking. Yeah, look forward to Rebecca Huntley. Uh, she's always got interesting things to say. She does. And uh, it was a very in-depth interview, quite broad-ranging. So I'm looking forward to sharing that at 10 o'clock. So tune in for that. Good one, Amy. Thanks so much, Ben. That was Ben Eltham, National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. And he joins me to talk about federal politics. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And I welcome Rebecca now. Hi, Amy. Hello. Thank you so much for coming in. Happy to come in. So I know that you're um, doing the rounds, you're travelling around Australia to, <laughs> to talk about this essay. Yeah. And um, you also do the rounds and travel around Australia quite a lot, don't you? Yes. For your job. Yeah, it's a bit of a, it's, yeah, it's one of the perks, I suppose, is the word to use, of being a social researcher. So most of the time um, when you're a qualitative researcher, so you're conducting face-to-face -face interviews or doing focus groups, you do them um, obviously uh, not over the internet, you do them in, in real life. Mm. So so I'm kind of travelling around and do a lot of work in regional Australia and sometimes going to people's homes and clubs and, and that's always fun, community centres, but also in, you know, focus group rooms and things. Yes. And in terms of those two very different types of research, qualitative and quantitative, yeah. do you think that qualitative offers a particularly different or useful insight for a range of stakeholders because I know your research would be used by many different parts of yeah. the community including perhaps, yourself. Perhaps not enough. Perhaps not enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, look I always think that that qualitative and quantitative research 
the weaknesses and strengths that complement each other. So most of your listeners would be mainly familiar with things like polls or, you know, just basically surveys. So do you prefer the current Prime Minister or Bill Shorten or, you know, what's the happening with the Greens vote or how many people want Muslim immigration stopped or, you know, all those kinds of things or how do people feel about negative gearing? So that tends to be quantitative and it tends to, um, you know, be reflected in numbers. Of course, it, it still raises lots of questions, you know, to what extent do you ask a question and do a big percentage not know how they feel or how strongly do they feel? Or more importantly, particularly on something like immigration, they might feel like, oh, we should stop Muslim immigration. But when you ask them how important is immigration to them in terms of all the issues that matter to them, it might be very, very low mm. down the, um, the, the spectrum of things that they care about. So even though numbers seem to think that they give us some certainty, they often raise a lot of questions. And then that's where qualitative research can really come in to giving you a deeper understanding. It's not representative. Um, you have to do very, very big amounts of qualitative research over years, which I've done, to even mm. get a sense of of talking about how the majority or the minority feel. You really need that quantitative research there. But qualitative research often gives you a better understanding of why people think the way they do and the really complex and often inconsistencies in why they feel the way they do. So you might meet somebody who... It's a first-generation migrant that thinks that first-generation... <laughs> that migrants shouldn't come to Australia. Yeah. What what is why? that about? Yeah. You know, what is that about? And so and and really understanding why somebody might feel that way, where logic might say that they shouldn't. I've even met asylum seekers who don't want more asylum seekers to come to <laughs> Australia, and you know refugees who want to stop the boat. So that's always a very kind of strange position to be in when you hear that. But but qualitative research gives you like it's at the quality and that kind of the t- you know the the deep dive and the numbers give you really the overview. It's only really together over long periods of time, drawing on very different kinds of research that you can even come close to what somebody might describe as the truth of how the Australian population feel about issues. Well, let's um, get back to immigration very soon. I want to highlight and discuss the thread that is through this essay, which is your concept and discussion of social democracy. The Labor Party, the Australian Labor Party, still says in their um, their constitution, I double-checked. Um, <laughs> it is still in there. <laughs> it's still there. I've, I actually hosted Talkback two weeks ago and a caller was fairly certain it had gone. because There have been times where people have wanted yeah, to um, remove it and... and um, I'll read it out just so people can see what we're saying. It's number four. It's under objectives, the first (laughs) objective. The Australian Labor Party is a democratic socialist party and has the objective of the democratic socialisation of industry, production, distribution and exchange to the extent necessary to eliminate exploitation and other antisocial features in these fields. Yes, and there's been a lot of screaming, yelling and and pen, you know, to paper about to the extent necessary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think you could describe the Labor Party ever, even in its beginning as a socialist party. In fact, I think Comrade Lennon made many, many jokes about the Labor Party not even beginning, you know, it was a kind of bourgeois, you saw it as a very bourgeois party. But social democracy is different than democratic socialism and social democracy sits 
much more obviously in the centre of politics, you know, somewhere between what we would describe as socialism and, and what people describe as kind of liberalism or free market capitalism or the kind of the, the politics of conservative parties in many ways. So, yeah, it kind of sits there. And even though those words have sat there in the party platform for a long time, it's because most of the people in the party who believe that who would, you know, never, ever want the party to be not only a socialist party but a social democratic party think it's not worth the effort of getting <laughs> of getting it removed because when when Labor parties are in government, they they will pursue the policies that they want to pursue yeah. at the time. They're not constrained it's, by what's in the platform. They're, no, they're not consulting it to say, <laughs> no, can we do that? Mm, to the extent necessary. <laughs> but that being said, the fact that it's still there and even though nobody wants to talk about it, it's still an opportunity really if people in the Lab Party want to reflect on, well, why was that put wet there and what does it mean and how do we update that? It's not These aren't just kind of meaningless empty words we could ignore, but is that an opportunity for us to rethink in the light of massive changes in politics about what that could mean for the party. Mm. Well, let's talk a bit about Tony Judd, who was a really fantastic historian. He's passed away. He has, very sadly. It's, yeah, and um, he was just so inspirational. He, as you said in this quarterly essay, delivered a lecture called What is Living and What is Dead in Social Democracy, and then he wrote a book based on that lecture called Ill Fares the Land, and it's probably one of the most moving books I've ever read. I'm not sure why it moves me so much, but he seems to just capture the essence of what is at stake and the issues. And so I'll just read out the first paragraph because I think it's really what you're talking about, about society's values. So he says... Something is profoundly wrong with the way we live today. For 30 years, we have made a virtue out of the pursuit of material self-interest. Indeed, this very pursuit now constitutes whatever remains of our sense of collective purpose. We know what things cost, but have no idea what they are worth. We no longer ask of a judicial ruling or a legislative act, is it good? Is it fair? Is it just? Is it right? Will it help bring about a better society or a better world? Those used to be the political questions, even if they invited no easy answers. We must learn once again to pose them. Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? Amazing, yeah. yeah. So he's asking, look, I was thinking about this before because a lot of the, the essay's only been out for about a week, but a lot of some of the some of the friends that I have who are a bit more on the right spectrum, say, you know, the kind of vision that you present about what the unsilent majority of Australians want a kind of a really fair society and some of the kind of more, for want of a better word, progressive view of Australia, mm. they say, well, that's not possible, you know, corporate interests would go after it or people say they want that but they don't, they don't actually want it when they're faced with the issue. And one of the things I've been reflecting on is, um, you know, my brief time as a, as a researcher in a big corporate, we were given some training about how to do negotiation with clients. And one of the rules of negotiation is you don't ask for what you think you can get, you ask for what you want. Mm. And I don't understand why people on the le- lefts of centre, instead of thinking about what is possible, don't first ask what is right. Yes. What do we want? Now, of course, we always know that what we really want is probably not going to be, in everything, mm. in relationships, is <laughs> probably not going to be what we get. But why don't you, tr- why don't you first ask that question? Right? Yeah. And so I, I, ne- I, I do not understand why people on the left stop asking that question 
and mm. first of all think about what is possible under the constraints that we have at the moment. It's not something that the extreme right do. The extreme right say, we're going to build a wall, whether they think it's going to happen or not. <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's so they true. They think we're going to stop all Muslim immigration or we're going to take you all back to this beautiful imaginary life mm. in the 1950s where women weren't angry and, and men had full-time <laughs> wonderful jobs and children galloped around the neighbourhood with dogs and bicycles. You know, I mean, so one of the things that I find so amazing about Tony's work is that mm. it takes us back to that fundamental question and you, you can't care about politics unless you care about what is the right thing to do. Now, what is possible is a separate question, but we have to ask ourselves what is the right thing to do to start, I think, and, and I, I worry that in the main party that is, that is the left to centre party in Australia remains the Labor Party that we're not always asking us that, uh, what always asking that question to start. Yes. It's interesting because um, Tony Judd, when he was talking about the US situation of like liberals, and so he's saying like there's progressive liberals who yeah. are Democrats perhaps, yeah. who would believe in some amount of a role for the government yep. but not a huge role but still something and also that taxation was like a necessary evil you needed to have in order to provide some services and you know in some cases it could be good whereas social democracy and the conception of European social democracy many of those countries that fully embraced it also fully embraced taxation and thought it was a great positive thing obviously to varying extents but it it was not necessarily seen as just something you have to do painfully to take people's income away from them to provide services. It was kind of framed in another yes, light. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In terms of the Australian situation, do you think Australia, perhaps when social democracy was at its highest point or at least some form of it, do you think that we had a different way of framing what government provides and what we're willing to give up? Yeah, I mean, we are, I think, for a long time have been unfortunately situated halfway between the American and the, the um, European models around taxation. And this may be why it's been so hard to get through taxation reform at different times. So what you've got, what the Australian Electoral Survey, which is very useful, it's not something I've been involved in, but comes out of the Australian National University, very useful longitudinal study about how people feel about a range of issues, has shown over time that since like the late 60s, there's been a slow but increasing desire for more investment in services and a kind of roughly parallel decline in desire for more tax cuts. So if, if faced with the option... Do you want a tax cut or more investment in services? Over time, slowly, it's headed more towards the investment in services. Now, that is a good thing, but let's look at the, the detail of that is kind of tricky. There has been a decrease in funding in government over time, so yes. you would hope that that would be what was pushing up the desire for increase in services. There's absolutely a resistance to the idea that what people would imagine are middle and lower income people so and and look everybody puts a different number mm. on what that is should be paying any more tax they want them to have less tax there are real issues around the fact I, mean, I just saw some numbers released the other day in the last two years there's been a 20 percent increase in the numbers of people having two jobs 
So whether that's people doing, you know, working six or seven days a week, as you often when you meet an Uber or a taxi driver, that might be the case, or it's people only being able to find part-time work. And so those people talk a lot about the tax taken out. And there's a lot of cynicism about whether corporate Australia is paying the right amount of tax. So the tax discussion is a very is a very complicated one. It has been in Australia for a long time because there's always been the orthodoxy that you should never, ever argue for tax increases. You should always be saying we want automatically tax to be decreased and politicians always say, oh, everybody says they want more investment in services, but if they think they have to pay more tax, that desire evaporates. I think the Australian population are a little bit more savvy than that and we've seen it in their response, for example, to the very modest views about taxation changes in relation to negative gearing superannuation um, and superannuation yep. so so you you've got a readiness to deal with some of the really obvious rorts that are that are well rorts well, well Massive things loopholes. that are really 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 benefiting <laughs> yeah. people who are already doing well exactly. in the scheme of things whether we're prepared to take the next step to say in order to be able to have world-class mbn world-class care for older australians the NDIS truly rolled out to fulfil its promise. Great public education. Are people prepared to pay a lot more tax at a time in which housing is still pretty expensive across the nation, even though there's been a you know decrease in the in the bubble, and a whole range of other costs are expensive. And that's a that's a much harder job of political advocacy mm. to get people to trust to say we're going to take your money and you're going to see that reflected in all these services that you've perceived there to be a decline. Well, that's really interesting. Is it perhaps that people don't necessarily trust politicians' ability to deliver fully on what they've promised? Perhaps government's currently not particularly well equipped in some ways because they've been stripped of expertise? Like- yeah, the, the expertise in government, stripping away of expertise in government's been a really interesting one. Look, I think, and, and one of the, the parts of the essay that is most important to me is the points that I make around renewing democracy and corporate donations Mm. to politics. So the kind of idea that politicians are kind of, you know, well-dressed grifters or will say one thing in an election campaign and do another when they're in government, these are not new things. (laughs) And anybody, as I say in the essay, anybody with even a passing understanding of colonial history will know that our colonial politicians were not respected. So this kind of idea that we trusted politicians and authority before and don't anymore is highly simplistic. The Rum Rebellion is a good example. Exactly. So, But I do think that that over time and particularly over the the period of the qualitative work that I did when I was the Mind and Mood Report and the work that my predecessor Hugh McKay did, there's certainly a growing recognition of how important corporate money is to politics. So there used to be this idea that money didn't fuel politics in the same way that it did in in America. But I think Australians are over time feeling not just that politicians and corporate leaders and some parts of the media are all mates that have barbecues together on the weekend. (laughs) It's more that they feel that there is absolutely money paid to the major parties by a whole lot of corporates for access and influence, not just necessarily straight out bribes, although we don't know because the reality is our federal legislation governing things like political donations is so uniquely bad that we can have literally millions and millions of dollars in one financial year circulating through that system and we don't know where it's from. We don't know how, we have absolutely no idea. So we can't measure the influence. 
So I think a big part of the cynicism about something like tax reform is that people think if we're going to have a truly equitable system where Qantas and the guy who runs Qantas and really, really wealthy guys and, and, you know, families with big family trusts pay the same amount of tax as I do, not the same amount, but the same yes. quantum, mm. is going to require reform that no political party wants to do because they're the very people that fund elections. Fund them, yeah. So whether or not that's true, whether there is substantially more corporate influence in Australian politics, I'm prepared to believe there isn't, but we won't know unless we reform the law because we can't see it. So much of it is opaque, some of it is dark. I'm not saying that there's ever going to be complete transparency, but we've got a system that just is now something that voters point to to increase their cynicism about whether something like tax reform... Um, that benefits the vast majority of Australians is ever going to be something on the agenda of the major parties. And there is this link, obviously, between political donations and political lobbying, but there's also a lot of other lobbying going on, not necessarily tied to donations, but part of other ways of networking. And uh, you highlighted the fact that basically such a huge proportion of politicians who exit politics end up in a major corporate lobby group or a corporate organisation of some kind and it seems to be more and more disenchanting for those watching from the outside to see that the kind of barriers that maybe we thought existed don't actually exist as much. Yeah, and that's a cultural change. I mean, I think that one of the things having known a lot of politicians in my life is that if if the standard trajectory that you see in politics now which is that you go through you know the the youth arm of a political party work for a political politician go into politics and kind of hang on to grim life (laughs) (laughs) until it's all over you know if you might get a stint on sky after dark or whatever but but you know you're often what's happened is your career has been politics. So Mm. suddenly kind of reinventing yourself at 40 or 45 or 50 into a new career is really difficult. So I think one thing we can do, and so of course you think, well, the perception that there are only a couple of avenues open to me as a lobbyist, um, as on a a well-paid board, because Mm. mates of mine in the political party will, will get me on that board, and those are my options, or for staffers, it's, you know, to go into corporate affairs and, and, and so forth. I can understand. They're, they're just scared about whether they're going to get a job after politics. And I think that's something to be said. You, I don't think you could make it mandatory, but I, I think one of the really critical things in the culture of parties is, you know, is actually to say, look, this is not a lifelong career. You know, you make, you, you go in, you, you, you go all out for 10 or 15 years or whatever, and then you go on. We, that, there's a really big need for renewal huge need for renewal and I think the other thing that's really critical is that we need to reimagine what it is to be involved in political life at the moment when you're in politics there are very very few avenues for going forward so you're a staffer you're a politician you might be a union official or whatever or you might run a think tank I think the solution to the kinds of problems that we're talking about, cultural problems of the of undue influence, um, whether through money or other means of politics, is just to get more people involved in politics and in political parties in different ways. And, and hopefully that will be one of the many things that we have to do to address some of the cultural and systemic problems that we see. So let's talk a bit about these key issues that you identify as being a bit of a sticking point for social democracy and the progression of that, perhaps 
the revival. Yes, in some yeah, I do form. talk about revival all the time. Yes. But hopefully, revival. <laughs> well, as you said, you need to aim high and actually talk about what could be possible and yeah. we would want. Yeah. And certainly, I feel like values-based consensus values of Australians doesn't necessarily get much of a run. You get these ideological values of small pockets. Yeah. But you're not getting a, a majority, which you're saying. You know, Australians value fairness. Yeah. They value in some way or form equality so that people are lifted up and brought along not left behind yeah and and increasing and this is the this is the key to reviving social democracy is that australians have and continue to see the state a well-functioning state as the best way to deliver that fairness Mm. and greater community cohesion They do not think that the market, the unregulated, unfettered market, will suddenly produce that naturally. And they look at everything from the global financial crisis to the Banking Royal Commission and they say even... I mean, even regulated banks in Australia, Mm. even a system where government is playing a role, you have big corporations behaving in a certain way that in no way benefits the consumer. In fact, it's to the detriment of consumers. So... What is key and what is a real point of optimism for me is that the revival of social democracy would not only be ideal, the conditions exist in the the broad attitude of Australians that that kind of equality that they value will be delivered by a well-functioning state. Mm. Yes, and it's interesting because you see or I've seen some pockets and political leanings who come from corporate life think, well, everyone thinks the market can do it better and make it more efficiently and we should always go to the market first to see what they can do before we think about government starting to intervene in things. You really raise the point that for housing, for example, the market has spectacularly failed and in some ways government policy such as the Hawke introduced negative gearing policy which was brought in for a very particular reason at the time has kind of been distorted into a whole other form now. What are the types of things that people have said to you in focus groups around housing and and the failure and what government could even be doing? Are there any things relating to social democracy that anyone has said around state intervention or government involvement? Well, I think there's kind of both, I suppose, a carrot and a stick approach to what the government might do in relation to housing. And so I suppose one of the things that people have seen is that, look, really big property developers who are making a huge amount of money building, it doesn't have to be on greenfield sites, Government should be able to say a certain amount of that housing at percentage should be available for low-income families. We're not talking about public housing here, mm. we're talking about affordable, affordable housing. Yeah. Or a certain amount should be available, not necessarily to buy, but to rent. So it hasn't been that kind of view in terms of, I suppose, a requirement. And then the other thing I think that... that um, that's clearly open is that the government itself, it's not just a question of building public housing, but itself in different kinds of ways, whether it be encouraging superannuation funds or to be able to invest in really, really good, well-built, affordable housing as well. So the government can be an investor. The government, I suppose, the other thing and yeah. you've seen happen a bit in Victoria and also in WA, invest in new kinds of models for social and affordable housing. Of course, the other thing that government can do is recognise that for a lot of people, owning your own home is never going to be possible. And so how do we create renting a more secure and sustainable um, proposition in a way that doesn't materially make landlords completely impotent in terms of what they can do for people who are renting. So getting that balance right at the moment, 
very few people think that that balance is right. <laughs> yeah. um, and a lot of the survey shows that isn't. So there's been various moves in different states to do things like change the laws around things like no-fault evictions. So I think there's a lot that the government can do, both as, um, as an investor but also uh, a lawmaker. And so you see people realise that for a long time the argument that, that this will be fixed by younger people working harder yeah. and lowering <laughs> their expectations... Um, there's a bit of that. Um, releasing more land. Yeah. Or giving one-off donations to people who enter the market. That that has not worked. Um, so I think what you get is a idea that there's going to be a whole range of solutions that may also need to reflect the local conditions. So yeah. what you do in Ballarat or Bendigo to encourage, you know, for in terms of affordable housing and all the rest of it, is probably going to be quite different than what you do in the centre of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So there are lots and lots of different solutions. People are looking for lots of different options where the state may play a different kind of role in those options yeah. or maybe... It's a, but all of it requires some kind of intervention in the market, um, this idea that the market will sort it out and the you know, and that hard workers will find a way to get into the market easily. It's not gelling with people anymore. Yes, and it requires a bit of a bigger vision as to what Australians are like, what their lifestyle is like and what they want. Because even in a coastal area, Mm. I'm seeing more and more apartments being built with commercial stores underneath and having these apartments on top. They do not fit the coast. They don't fit the town. There's so many ways that it just is not... You can't transplant the CBD of Melbourne into no, that's not the, the peninsula. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so everyone's just not sure who should be responsible. But certainly a lot of backlash was occurring at the last Victorian state election around those issues from yeah. people in regional areas who don't want their town to be turned into no. another big city. No, absolutely. And and the solution isn't... Yeah, it's loosen isn't making a couple of regional areas like little Melbournes yeah. either. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously this requires a kind of not only a whole of government but multidisciplinary approach. So you're talking not just about economists and and public service servants. You're talking also about architects and town planners and and sociologists and particularly local councils critical here and people working at community centres and so forth. Com- community activists um, on the ground who understand mm. what the best thing is going to be, particularly in things like in terms of how you deal with issues of both visible and hidden homelessness, which is, um, I mean, one of the good things I think it's a slow but I think important shift is that while People still think that visible homelessness is something that is caused by addiction or I think increasingly they call things like family violence. They are connecting it a bit more and realising that actually if you make housing incredibly difficult to access, Mm. there is going to be a kind of a, 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 you know, there's going to be a domino effect and so you are going to create a a kind of what they call a hidden homelessness which is going to make it for people who may be living rough even harder for them to find new ways to get some secure housing. So I think, in fact, while the housing issue has been so really cute, there's been some really important shifts that have happened in public perception because it's gotten so bad. Yes, and I was pretty 
interested in some of the discussions you had with those who do negatively gear their properties. (laughs) I was really surprised that one, um, I'm going to quote, we could probably have just got a loan through a bank and bought the property outright and positively geared it. If negative gearing wasn't available, we probably still would have done it. All I know is we get a free holiday from the taxes. Yeah, yeah. And there were a lot of those people who negatively gear who said, I'd be happy to give it up if it meant that others could afford a house. Yeah, look, it's really interesting talking to people who negative gear or who are in a position to do it. I mean, I'm not at all saying that all of them are for changes, but if you push them and say, look, was negative gearing the thing that made you invest it really wasn't most of the time they're just worried about they've got the money and they're worried about superannuation they're worried about their retirement and they don't think that super will give the same returns negative gearing makes it easier they get a better return and you know if you are negative gearing you're much more likely to say that you're worried about the effect on the market more broadly if you get rid of it but no one was saying there was absolute without negative gearing there was no way i would take this path so again i think there is a kind of a more appetite in this area than people assume. For a long time, there was an assumption that if you did anything with negative gearing, you were attacking industry and initiative and and aspiration. And I think people have realised that the housing situation and the need mm. for there to be more revenue to be able to invest in the things that really matter to people, and that is health and education, infrastructure, um, and so forth, then some sacrifices have to be made and, and maybe negative gearing, franking credits are some of the ones that that people are prepared to live with because there's no doubt that people, Australians feel that our social safety net, our environment and our lifestyle is going to be taxed more. I mean, not taxed in the literal way, but yeah. it's going to be put on more put and more pressure, pressure yeah. in the future than it has been in the past. It is it continues to rise. I yep. certainly see it myself. And you sat down with um, a generation of three women from the one family. Yes. Yep. And the youngest, who was a nurse, works in emergency. And um, she was saying, I really thought this resonated because I know a lot of my friends have said similar yeah. things. In order to negatively gear or own a property, yeah. one would have to be an investor and rent it out yeah. rather than live in it. Yeah. And so um, she had said, my friends with partners are so much better off. Perhaps I'd be better off having a boyfriend or a partner. Life is much tougher when you're single. Yeah, yeah. It's and really tough. That's kind of disturbing to think (laughs) that anyone, male or female, feels that much financial pressure that they must or should or would be better off and have some level of social pressure around picking a partner or settling down beyond whether they wanted to. She absolutely thought that was the case. And I know I've met people who have even been in, in couples who've thought the best way forward is for us to buy a place negative gear it and then move back with our parents which requires a level of kind of yeah. I suppose affluence of the parents mm. and everything I mean these are and, and and so I suppose what's really what's really um, we're still talking about a reasonably well positioned group but that's what's so surprising to me that that the conservatives who would normally be very this would be their you know voters their bread and butter you know people yeah. who that they haven't picked up on this enough and realised that actually something kind of more dramatic needs to be done around housing other than kind of blind faith that the market will kind of sort it out. Yeah. So let's move into some of the other or two of the the other most important issues that you've identified because, as you said at the beginning of the essay, housing just comes up 
so often yes. and it has risen in the amount of discussions you've had. Yeah. But there are two other areas we've briefly referenced immigration and also the environment and you said that historically those two areas haven't been a great strength of social democracy or have at least highlighted some tensions? Yeah I mean look there's a very strong trope of racism through social democracy really since its inception in Australia. That's not to say that social democratic movements and parts of the Labor Party haven't been concerned about race issues but it's always seen like that that's been peripheral or optional (laughs) I suppose is a really kind of and and I think as well the environment as well so um, that they're always kind of at the periphery rather at the centre. I really struggle always to write about immigration and race issues although I write about it all the time because in most cases the way that the majority of Australians feel on things roughly correlates with my own on a rate on immigration it almost never does (laughs) so it's hard to (laughs) right and then often and because it is it it, because it's so strong it's often very hard for me to suggest ways forward and in the the essay the main thing I said is that we just need our community is ethnically diverse and our parliaments are not on the whole there's been some improvements in some sides more than others And that just has to change. I don't think people with a lived experience of racism always make great policy in relation and progressive policy in relation to race, but Mm. it's a start. So I think that's pretty critical. In terms of the environment, there's absolutely no way that a renewed social democracy can't include the environment at the centre because the environment is going to increasingly and is already impact on standards of living. If Mm. social democracy developed because um, movements wanted to guarantee certain standards of living in terms of wages, health, conditions and rights, then the environment will be the greatest influence in the future on all of those things, our ability to breathe, (laughs) our ability to eat, drink water, to be able to work, to be able to raise healthy children, to live in great environments, to move from one place to the other. So, um, and increasingly we've seen people recognise that animals and trees and fish and people are disconnected. We're slowly, slowly, slowly slowly understanding... (laughs) the connection between these things. And every time we have an extreme weather event or an extreme, you know, terrible bushfire season or fish kills or animals falling from trees, unfortunately those kinds of disasters are going to be the things that are necessary to get people to understand that these are all linked. So mm. so social democracy has to privilege environmental issues because it's about it's about fundamental human rights and standards of living. It's about it, you know, so that's that's why, and I try and argue for that as well as I possibly can in the essay. You do argue very well, <laughs> I think. You also um, raise the issue of collective security. Yep. And I thought, you know, social democracy arose out of post-war Europe and that also really did resonate is this idea that social democracy's foundations is about cohesion and inclusion yep. in, in terms of that not leaving someone else behind having that connectedness of community. And the other thing that we forget is social democracy was was there to bolster democracy as a solution to big problems. So both communism on the extreme left and fascism on the extreme right 
said, we can solve these problems by getting rid of democracy. And there's lots of work about whether democracy is up to the task of dealing with the issue of climate. Now, I don't have a big answer yeah. to that, but I really want to push our ability for democracy to do it because I don't want to say we want a totalitarian leader of whatever ilk as a way to deal with the problems that we've... I want, to, I want to make sure that democracy is up to the task, is fighting fit to deal with the threat as big as climate change. And mm. that's why we have to make environmental issues at the centre of social democracy. It's about protecting the democracy and social democracy. Yes. Well, protecting our entire planet that we live on, like that we're actually reliant upon not just for breathing yeah. but for materials. Yes, all of those kinds of things. Yeah, yes. food. Yeah. It is surprising that it's taken so long for people to realize how interconnected we are with the land that yeah. we live on obviously it hasn't taken indigenous australians long because no. they originated with all of those issues yeah. as part of their culture well, you know, one of our one of our great national problems is we failed to learn both indigenous history and failed and to learn, learn from yeah exactly and that should be a source of pride but also a, a massive resource sure we should be listening absolutely um so overall in this essay part of the contention is that there is this you're saying they're unsilent in the sense that <laughs> they vote every three yeah, years in vote. a federal yeah, election you can see their sentiment expressed you know not always clearly but yes. i can see you know every election um, result makes sense and i can hear the voices of the people that i research expressed through the ballot box or yes. often misinterpreted through the ballot box in various ways but yeah very much so recently <laughs> in by-elections yeah. for example but we hear about this idea of progressive Australians or that there's a majority that would accept certain things we're not necessarily saying they're Labor voters or that they're left-wing but no. that they have a set of values that are quite common and shared and that perhaps yeah. enable things that are quite progressive like lifting people up, like caring about the environment, yeah. making sure people can actually have access to housing and a yeah, job. more investment in, in aged care, the idea yeah. that we need to have an NDIS or even something. I mean, it's always fascinating to me, something which un until recently in Victoria was something that just completely flummoxed the political system, which is euthanasia. Nobody wanted mm -hmm. to deal with it. No, it was just all in the too hard basket. But... Actually, if you look in terms of attitudes to euthanasia across political allegiances of those cohorts, there's a really strong majority across the board for euthanasia, including in One Nation voters. <laughs> so I think because so much of, our, of the visible political contests and our media is about conflict, is about difference, and, and in so many ways so pig-headed, let's get somebody who completely denies climate change is happening with somebody who's a climate change scientist and then they, you know, they try, you know, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Yes. <laughs> and so I think people mistake that for for what's happening in the public. Yeah. And so what I try and do in the essay is really say, well, what does the data, not just the data I've collected, but what does all the data say about what we agree on? And where is the foundation, right? And how do we build up from that? Now, obviously, the, the, where there's the really extreme conflicts are on things that are in so many ways hit at some really kind of dark and complex emotions in um, terrorism, 
immigration, climate change. Climate change is terrifying, you know, whether you believe in it or not. You just... You, you, every human impulse is to, to look away, often on a lot of gender issues as well. So I understand why there's been so much focus and there, and there often is some polarisation. But I suppose I want to start again. In the, way, in the same way as we have to start about what is a good society, what kind of society do we want to have, not what do we think is politically achievable, I also think we need to start on where's the agreement... And, and the research shows us there's agreement on a whole lot of things in which there's been a lot of political, let's say, sometimes apathy, sometimes inertia. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. when people say politicians are poll driven, I go, yes, but the wrong polling. Polls, yeah. <laughs> the what wrong ones are polling. they looking at? <laughs> there's all of this research that says what people want. Now, yeah. now, now sometimes maybe that acting on that research isn't going to win you the finely balanced marginal seat campaign. That's the problem. So much yeah. focus is on how do we win the seats we have to... So what are the issues there? If it's a roundabout, we're all going to be talking about roundabouts. roundabouts. Um, yeah, or Karangamite, it's swimming pools. Yeah, which exactly. Is and that's not to weird. say that roundabouts and swimming pools... Right, they're very important. It's not saying they're not important. No, no. We sometimes lose a sense of the wood for the trees as we're trying to kind of, you know, as both sides are trying to chop down one tree... So, I mean, again, one of the things I wanted to write the essay about is that, you know, people like me, people who run focus groups and political pollsters have had a pretty bad rap as if we're the reasons why there's poll-driven politics. And I'd say, well, researchers are just most of the time just trying to do their job, do it pretty well. We do all kinds of research. How how politicians act on that is not necessarily up to us. <laughs> and also I'm trying to say, look, the research is not showing kind of weird results. You will read most of the essay and most of it will connect with what yeah. you think. Yeah, not everything, I no. would never say that. But a lot of it would be like, yeah, I think that way or that the way that person said that, I get that. And that's my life. So I wanted to make that visible for an audience who perhaps doesn't consume that kind of research Mm. regularly as part of their job. Well, it's so useful. Rebecca, I want to just end on probably the most important note, which is should a federal Labor-shortened government get in, where is the Labor Party at in terms of capitalising on this quite broad foundations of agreement in certain areas? Because at the start of your essay, you say that a role of a new federal Labor government would not be to change hearts and minds, all a Labor government would have to do if it were to fulfil its election commitments is update policy and law to reflect the views and desires of the Democratic majority. So in a way you're kind of suggesting they are quite well placed politically to be able to take up some of these things that the populace has already been way ahead of parties on. In terms of social democracy and and that idea, how close is Labor to picking up either on that vision and or just fulfilling its commitments that actually most or at least a majority might already have a consensus view on? Yeah, look, it's difficult because in in many ways they can make a whole range of commitments in relation to social housing which they have in relation to strengthening environmental laws which they have investing in renewable energies which they have making commitment for example in terms of doing something material on the Uluru statement to the heart so you can do all of that and there and the data shows there's a, a support for that the question is what are the priorities going to be to do all that in one term would be a bit Overwhelming. Slightly Whitlam-esque. Where is the opposition? And by opposition, yeah. I don't mean necessarily the political opposition, but where's the corporate opposition to that? Where are the vested interest opposition? What is the media going to... What are some parts of the media influential parts going to do? 
So it's easy to say they can do it. The harder thing is what will they choose to do and how, and also to do it well and to explain it fully to the Australian people. I mean, again, and this is, I suppose, I'm, I'm betraying here my personal interest. I think that if they win well and they kind of they get a substantial majority, the first thing they need to do is really address this idea of trust and a big thing would be around corporate donations. And that would potentially make people think, well, they're fair dinkum about making sure that the decisions they make are not because their mates in the fossil fuel industry or whatever or other industries are saying you've got to do this, that that there would hopefully be the beginning of building the idea that reform and policy was based on what was the right thing to do, not what feathering everybody's nest. So even though it seems like a small thing, I think that's a very important first step. Then I think, you know, we are really talking in terms of bread and butter issues, that whole issue of the idea of downward pressure on wages and increasing um, costs in other areas, including things like private healthcare insurance. Um, So addressing that, I think, would be critical. And, of course, housing is a big part of that. And then, you know, I hope that there is going to be more and more focus on the environment. But, again, I think it's something that they'll have to you know, be careful about. But there's a larger question, not just in terms of environmental policy, but in terms of the people who run the Labor Party and the members of the parties and the affiliated unions about really it's an emotional and psychological and philosophical frame, which is this is not part of an electoral strategy or because we want to beat the Greens in the inner city. This is central to what the Labor Party's vision of the world, that the environment is central. That is a shift I'm not entirely convinced (laughs) the whole of the party has had. There needs to be a great swerve towards that new philosophical position. I think it used to exist in some parts of, like in different states, for example, the Victorian government under Brax and Thwaites were a lot more progressive on the environment and national parks. And you raise this whole issue of, you know, different parts of unions and working class groups having vested interests in the environment, for example, in native forest logging, and that can be a real contentious area. But a lot of people in the Labor movement and party have raised the Daniel Andrews government and that Victorian election win as being a signal that obviously not all of Australia is going to be like Victoria, but that this kind of vision and idea for a far more progressive version of Labor than currently federally exists could be palatable. Do you take any stock of that argument and whether that ever has come up for you? Well, I suppose I go back to this idea about this idea that there's a progressive vision and an old, and a, you know, a progressive vision that's about cultural and social values of the Labor Party and a kind of materialist jobs and wages vision of the Labor Party, which isn't environmental, just doesn't make any sense anymore. Mm. If you're a union representing men and women who cut down trees, you want them to have a job for the next 100 years. Therefore, your industry has to change dramatically. It's going to change anyway. Yeah. And if you're um, a union representing people that are in the mining industry, again, your industry is going to change whether you like it or not. So I suppose the thing is, is I, I reject the idea that the environment isn't about jobs. I reject the idea that caring about the environment on one hand is different than caring about people's standard of living or their wages or their conditions or their health. It's, it is the same thing. The electorate are slowly getting to that point. And the union, the union and Labor Party have to get to it as well. 
these are materialist concerns, not cultural and social concerns. They've been previously positioned that way, that it's inner city latte lefting people who've never put their foot on farming or mining or forestry land in their life that worry about these things, are concerned about things like pretty trees. It's absolutely not that anymore. And there are still vestiges of that attitude and it needs to go because we all know that the people who are going to get it in the neck when the environment really goes down the tube are working-class people. Yes, farmers, a whole range of people, and that's why we saw the shooters and fishers yeah. kind of tend to do better in some yeah, ways than the nationals. Absolutely. yep. Rebecca, it's been fantastic it's speaking been fantastic with you. fantastic to talk to you, Amy. I absolutely really enjoyed this quarterly essay, and Thank it's you. so readable, and it does really put out a different direction that could definitely be taken based yeah. on actual yeah. evidence and Australians' views. Yes, thank you for having me. Thank you. I hope everyone, if you're interested, can pick up a copy of the quarterly essay, issue 73. It's called Australia Fair, Listening to the Nation, and it's written by social researcher and writer Rebecca Huntley. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm delighted now to welcome Dr. Andrew McGregor, who is lecturer in French studies at Melbourne University. Hello. Hello, Amy. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure. And I just had such a great time talking about this great movement, this invigorating movement of cinema, which continues to live on and inspire. And I was surprised to know that Claude Chabrol lived until 2010. So Yes. Yes, yeah, and very prolific. So we're still making films up until, you know, fairly recently. Absolutely. It was roughly one per year, actually, which is incredible. It's insane. Um, perhaps one of the most prolific directors of that era, still going strong. Yes. And so, well, I just I printed out his IMDb list because it's so long. It's I didn't long. think I'd actually. Yeah. It's about three pages just of his directing, not, mm. not of anything else. And he did, he was known to support others in the movement um, with directing and other other parts or aspects of filmmaking. Absolutely. He was there right from the beginning. So he was amongst the group consisting of Jean-Luc Godard, as you mentioned, François Truffaut. Um, funnily enough, we just screened uh, Godard's first uh, feature film, Abou de Souffle, Breathless, at Melbourne Uni for our French study students. Um, just last week, actually. What was their response? I'm just curious. Their response was fantastic. And I think what's yeah. so wonderful about this new wave is that there's still this, this real kind of freshness about it. And as you mentioned, the legacy continues. There are so many various homages back to this movement, the experimental nature of it, and just that kind of revitalization of what a director does. And what's intriguing is that they all kind of managed to find each other at this time, but they all managed to bring to the the screen their own kind of signature style. I mean, we know very well, as you mentioned, Godard, there's also Truffaut, which is kind of like a Beatles and Rolling Stones thing where people, you know, they just have such a... Uh, such masses of adoring fans and it's almost like a cult following and Chabrol has has not not enjoyed the same amount of um, kind of veneration as those other two but he's certainly worthy and I'm thrilled to bits that the Melbourne Cinematheque has uh, has got this retrospective on for us to enjoy. Same. Mm. I'm not going to take any credit for it but when Melbourne Cinematheque put out their survey at the end of last year and said, which filmmakers do you want to see? I filled it out and said Chabrol. <laughs> and fantastic. I don't, I'm sure I'm not the only person who did that. Yep. But I was so excited then when they did do it because he just, it's, well, first of all, it's hard to access his films. Mm. Some of them, the better known ones are semi-accessible like... Um, 
uh, the butcher and Les Cousins and um, Les Biches, there's, that's a little bit easier. But mm. some of these others that the Cinematheque is showing, you cannot get on DVD. Yes. And uh, it's not on YouTube, not that you would want to ruin a great film by watching it on YouTube and also doing the wrong thing. Mm. Um, so this is just great that they're making these films accessible. Um, certainly is. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit about... Claude Chabrol, like mm. the formative years of, sure. and how he influenced the movement. Mm. Um, really, I'll just give a little bit of a background for people. He was born in Paris in 1930, so between the two world wars. He, I was surprised to know, ran a film club in a barn in the village in which he grew up in Sardin. And after World War II, he studied pharmacy, which his dad insisted on. Mm. Um, and then amazingly ran into in these various cinematheques and um, the Club du Quartier Latin and he ran into Truffaut, Godard, uh, Romain, all those great... Yes, what a bunch to bump into. Wow. Uh, like, <laughs> if you're an aspiring filmmaker. So jealous. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just incredible. It's just like that um, serendipity of the time that they yeah. happened to be together. And yes, they did help each other out and Chabrol was the first to get a, a feature film up and running thanks to inherit an inheritance he received thanks to his first wife, wife actually, yeah. um, and then was able to also assist the others. So he was actually an advisor on Breathless for Godard, mm -hmm. which is pretty amazing, and Truffaut kind of sketched a couple of pages of a, of a script that Godard you know, eventually kind of improvised from. So they were all kind of involved with each other at that stage and then yeah. went pretty much, very much, in fact, their separate ways. And in terms of the, their various collaborations, as you say, it's to v different extents and different points in their career, but they mm. did have this common ground around film criticism. Yes. And Chabrol is known for his uh, study of Alfred Hitchcock and many people make comparisons with Hitchcock because of his uh, focuses, focus on mystery, thriller, murder, all of these really um, deeply tense scenes mm. um there's so much more going on than just that though it's absolutely socially there's yes, a lot going on definitely but it's it, just to get back to the actual filmmaking angle yeah. i mean it's it's incredible the role that hitchcock played in inspiring all of those characters from the new wave um he, he teamed up with eric romer who's another one from the time on a book on Truffaut and uh, on a book on hitchcock and of course it was Truffaut who did one of the definitive volumes on hitchcock himself mm. so there was certainly even though there was very much this idea of reinventing the cinema there was also this this kind of legacy that they were drawing from as well and drew a lot of inspiration from Hitchcock and in Chabot's case Fritz Lang and a lot of other ones, Clouseau as well. Yes, Lang definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, there's a special journal that um, a range of those auteurs contributed to and really created. Mm. It was the Cahier du Cinema. That's right. Did I say that Cahier right? du Cinema. Yeah, Perfect, Cahier Amy. du Cinema. <laughs> it's been a while since <laughs> I studied French at, at uni. Um, but it, that is so amazing that they yes. create, like, it's not, they didn't go, oh, let's just contribute to something. Let's just go create stuff. Exactly. And they were so um, creative with a, such a small amount of resources. Exactly. At the time, fortunately, there was enough of a kind of technological evolution at the time that allowed them to do that. So the budgets were drastically reduced and they were able to get enough financing to, to make their films out in the street, kind of filming life as they saw it. And 
getting things out of the studio, out of that idea that films are all about kind of theatrical adaptations of big literary texts. So it's a real kind of spirit of freedom and youth as well, a real mm. genuine reinvention of the cinema. And if we place Chabrol's first film in the timeline of mm. French New Wave, he's pretty much right at the start. Absolutely. Le Beau Serge, or yes. Serge, mm-hmm. uh, in 1957. Mm. So... I mean, what was his role? Was he... I mean, every every director formed their own style and their own kind of themes. Yeah. But what do you think Chabrol's influence was on the others in terms of his pioneering work? I think it probably was in terms of the legacy there because, I mean, a lot of those early films, uh, even Breathless, you could count among them, is drawing from... The, they're kind of drawing from that Hollywood film noir um, legacy as well. So I think they weren't afraid of kind of adopting and adapting genres, um, even though, funnily enough, auteur cinema, because they're all now regarded as auteurs, is often kind of opposed to genre filmmaking. But that's actually mm-hmm. a bit of a, um, you know, it's a, it's a red herring in a way because they are, in fact, masters at reinventing genres and working with structures that people are familiar with. Now, someone like Godard has moved right away from that and that's kind of his trademark. But with Chabrol, I think just in in reading some other reactions to his work, it's quite interesting that he doesn't stand out in quite the same way in terms of reinventing cinema and constantly experimenting, but he's actually able to achieve his his aims in a in a different way which is to is to really kind of um tap into the preoccupations of the predominantly bourgeois audience and really skewer them at the same time so he's yeah. he's an expert at kind of biting the hand that feeds him he is he's he's so unique i feel yeah. and i've read i was actually reading like I'm going to hold this up so no one can see it on radio, but you can, Andrew. Yes. Um, This extremely vintage copy of The New Wave by James Monaco, Mm. which is amazing from the Rowden White Library, that wonderful student union library. Um, But it was so interesting to read uh, some of the things that people have said and considered about Mm. Chabrol. And some people have said he's had this reputation for being one of the most, if not the most, quote-unquote commercial of the new wave directors has that assumption or you know i think it's not quite true to me Mm. i don't maybe it was at the time but it doesn't seem all that commercial maybe in comparison to jean-luc godard it is but what what are your thoughts on that assessment of his commercial appeal yeah i think that's a little bit unfair and a bit inaccurate Um, he certainly wasn't part of the the big budget movement like the big booming cinema of the 1980s even though he has in fact done adaptations i mean madame bovary was one of his most critically successful films as well so he's not afraid of trying different things as far as that's concerned some of them were, were kind of on demand, actually, some mm-hmm. of those works. But I think what what is particular about Chabrol is that he's kind of like this reassuring centre of French cinema. He's like the go-to person. I remember going yeah. to see one of his films in the late 80s with my mum at the Brighton Bay Cinema, <laughs> which is the perfect place for that kind of audience that, he's yeah. really, that he really wants to get stuck into. Um, with all due respect to our listeners from Brighton, of course. And, um, <laughs> from Brighton. <laughs> exactly. Brighton, yeah. And I think that's, that's really where you can, you can look at his, at his body of work and say, well, yes, he was actually very much a specialist. You mentioned before that, you know, in terms of, of, of his, if, if you wanted to identify a genre, it probably would be the kind of crime thriller. Mm. But it's really a study of, of social mores and practices. And, um, you know, a film like um, La Cérémonie, for example, from the late... Um, from the mid-90s uh, with Sandrine Bonner and um, Isabelle Huppert, two remarkable actresses. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's a, it's like a kind of overly slightly melodramatic style and often some critics of Chabrol have said that he has a fairly kind of distanced approach to what we're looking at and he's a fairly theatrical style but I think that's quite deliberate that we're not able to really engage with the characters we're not really we don't find them endearing mm. we find ourselves observing them and this is almost like the classic Chabrol clinical approach of watch these bourgeois <laughs> play out their little social practices and ceremonies, and I think the title is actually playing on that, um, with obviously devastating consequences, as we see. Yes. So it's about role-playing. It's about looking at how we actually perform a role in our day-to-day -day lives. And when I say us, it's the bourgeois audience that mm -hmm. he's referring to. Um, and even though he was probably more bourgeois than the bourgeois, really, I mean, he enjoyed, you know, a very comfortable lifestyle. He loved to eat. There was a, there's often eating in his films, yeah. very lush surrounds, etc. So he kind of revels in it, but he really is taking an axe to it at the same time, especially the idea that there is this, this sense of elitism or superiority over others. And in that sense, he really is very much a revolutionary. <laughs> I, you, I, you've just taken the words out of my mouth. Thank you for saying that. Because I was, um, maybe you were too, watching La Ceremonie last night. Yes, until the early hours of the morning. Same. <laughs> and loving every minute yeah, of it. Yeah, it was hard to stop. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, well, it looks like we both lost sleep. And, uh, well, it was, it's exactly what you say. It's this class conflict and tension that mm. is kind of simmering constantly. Yes. And... And you did feel like a fly on the wall. You didn't really feel invested in the characters, really, mm. but you were just going, oh, I wonder what they're thinking and meaning. And, you know, <laughs> is she really an arsonist? And has she killed her dad? And, you know, like exactly. it, you're kind of going, mm, maybe she's like a serial killer. And you're just mm. constantly you're intrigued and trying to pick up on exactly. what's going to happen. And, and But I think what you picked up on is the class distinctions is pretty mm. clear in La Ceremonie where it's just where it's pretty, you know, it's a maid. They call yes. her the maid um, and they even have this discussion about what should we call her and everyone's quite... They, I mean, they really dehumanise her in mm. a way. She's just someone who's going to do the cleaning and the cooking and it's and even the younger son, that younger son mm. who's not even maybe barely a teenager is saying, but is she good-looking? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and no one's... The mother or the father didn't say, that's inappropriate or, you that's know, right. that's not what a... <laughs> <laughs> what the feature of any good person would be is whether they're exactly. good looking. And it's done with such subtlety that yeah. it doesn't appear that abnormal. So what he's trying to say is that this is actually going on all the time in this kind of very comfortable middle-class environment where these prejudices are played out on a daily basis. And, you know, as in the case of La Ceremonie, with devastating consequences, I presume that this is a spoiler-free zone, Amy, so I, I'll leave that one up to the audience. Probably. <laughs> Only because this one's it's part, worth of, out, yeah, anyway. it's part of the Cinematheque lineup. Yes, so I won't spoil that one. that one. Yes. Yeah, but it, it is, it's that idea also that um, the maid character has this real struggle with um, learning. She has this particular learning difficulty mm. and that also even more reinforces the disconnect that exists That's and right. the lack of compassion or even awareness mm. of other people. Definitely. And, and she's ashamed of that as well. And yeah. she's attempting to hide it. And I think that's also indicative of what's going on with the family itself. There's this veneer of normality 
and everyone looks very comfortable in their own kind of positions. But as soon as you, and this is classic Chabot as well, as soon mm. as you introduce an intruder, and in this case it's Sophie the maid, um, all hell breaks loose and all those kind of conventions and all the ceremony and rituals start to come to pieces. And this yes. happens so frequently in his films and it's quite fascinating to behold. And it really is, I guess, a bit of a mir- it's holding up a bit of a mirror for the audience as well to realise, well, actually, you know, this is... I can identify with what I'm seeing here, even though I'm looking at it from, you know, the safe distance of a Shabal movie. And it's great, too, the way, you know, in terms of his camera movement and all the rest of it, he doesn't kind of shy away from fairly, you know, obvious camera moves and he's kind of reminding us at the same time that we are watching a spectacle, that, you know, this is a film, Chabrol is there, and this is the particular subject that he's analysing. So in terms of us kind of losing ourselves in the film, Mm. it's not really an option. Um, I think you have to be actively thinking. You do, you You do, absolutely. If you're cerebral, if anyone listening is cerebral, you're just going to love this film. (laughs) Exactly. It's not, you're not going to suspend your disbelief necessarily and be Mm. immersed in France. You're going to be like, wow. Yes. And yeah. and it's so true, as you say, that it is it has a freshness and it has a relevance in terms mm. of this bourgeoisness and the class divisions that still exist. And yes. what is so obvious is really towards the end of the film where the family's watching Don Giovanni <laughs> and opera. And they even have <laughs> the <television>. score. Yeah. <laughs> yes, <that's right. laughs> like it's pretty amazing. But that mm. said, it's probably not that far from how some that's people right. used to and perhaps still do. Mm live yes and in and of itself it's not bad but the way that that all plays out exactly yeah and i think that's that's that kind of disturbing edge and there's always a disturbing edge in there somewhere with a shovel film and i think that's really his his talent when you look at the the you know the collection of, of works that he's put out and there's so much of it out there i think if you're looking for a legacy that would be it this kind of really somewhat comforting and reassuring familiarity that he mm. eventually undoes in one way or another often by the in- introduction of a you know a third wheel as it were yeah <laughs> and some people have called him the film noir in color guy you know yes. so <laughs> which is also probably really oversimplistic to be honest oh, but i think it's i think it's good i mean he's having fun with it that's the yeah. other thing you know this is not kind of it's it does kind of demand a certain degree of active interaction on the part of the spectator, but mm. it's not overly cerebral to the no, point no. of it being, you know, it's kind of opaque. It's not like highbrow and like, That's oh, right. oh, yeah, I can't understand what's going on. It's yeah. very accessible. That's right. It's kind of like us having a laugh at ourselves. He's yeah. certainly laughing somewhere behind the camera, that's for sure. And a lot of people have said that he didn't really take himself seriously mm. and he often disparaged his own work and people would say um, or ask him questions about, uh, literary quotations in his films such as uh, Balzac in Le Boucher and he would say I'll be truthful, it's to give them substance. I need a degree of critical support for my films to succeed without that they can fall flat on their faces. So what do you have to do? You have to help the critics over their notices right? So I give them a hand. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's rather a luxury. You'd have to be in that position already to be able to make films in that way. But that's, exactly. I guess that's part of the fun of it as well that you know he had his system going he was so prolific and the same could be said for Godard as well I mean how on earth would anyone be able to make the kinds of films that Godard is still making now without his background without his name and fame yeah absolutely and 
if we're talking about this broader movement, because I know you at the moment are teaching an entire mm. subject about French cinema That's and right. French New Wave does feature quite substantially. Yes. Um, we did hint at the fact that there are differing styles between the directors, differing genres that they focus on, mm. Goddard being... Um, sometimes or most often the most experimental in terms of mm. style and like cinematic um techniques yes in possibility yeah. yeah and and yeah. it's like a lot of his movies are very political even if they're not overtly political there's just a deep you know political thread of 1960s or 1970s protest and Absolutely. you know against de gaulle vietnam and i think that his style really suits that like mm. social commentary or political exploration and as we see in all of the films human nature yes um, but with his new film let's just bring that in because mm. i haven't seen it unfortunately mm. it's in the cinemas right now which is great um presumably you may have already seen it i have seen it thanks to the french film festival very hard to get hold of yeah um, um so yes that's it's it's not surprising it's it's actually quite difficult to to go and have a look at it and even once you're there it's actually quite a difficult experience um i went to have a look at um i just kind of chose a session at random and my two or three experiences of seeing the latest Godard film at a festival, whether it's the French Film Festival or Melbourne International Film Festival, uh, at least half the room left after about 10 really? or 15 minutes. So you've got your hardcore wow. Godard fans yeah. and you've got others who just want to see a French film in the French festival who uh -huh. had no idea. And I think that's, that's typical of Godard these days because he, does, he doesn't want that kind of an audience. Um, it's a much more no, it's elitist... it's not Gérard Depardieu. It's not. It's <laughs> not going to be Jean de Florette or anything like that or those big 80s productions. Yeah. Um, so this is a very different experience and it, it really does make one ask oneself, what, you know, going back to the 1950s and André Bazin's famous question, what is cinema? What mm. is the point of making films and going to the cinema and watching films? And Godard is so out there, he's tending more and more towards total abstraction. Mm. Um, so very, very different from the kinds of films that Truffaut was making, that's for sure. So without, even though there is that personal element there because you've got Godard's politics all the way through it. Um, I mean, there's, yeah. no, there's no narrative here. There are no actors. There's no actual film production going on. This is all kind of found footage and existing footage pieced together because these are the images that we're dealing with these days. And when I saw the film, I was actually mm. thinking of things like YouTube and the fact that we are so saturated with media right now. And I think Godard is, he didn't mention it directly, but I think kind of tapping into that idea that we're trying to piece together me meaning from fragments. And that's where he calls into play this kind of Brechtian idea that um, there's more authenticity in a fragment than in the whole. So it's a fascinating wow. piece of work, yeah. but it takes some real intellectual endeavor to try and make sense of it. It's certainly not filmmaking for everyone. And that's, precisely Godard's intention. Even mm. after the success of Breathless, he said he hoped that um, people would hate his second film and that was back <laughs> in 1960. So yeah. you can imagine, you know, where Which is that right now? Which one was the second one again? Um, that's a good question. Um, his follow-up. Yeah, I, I look, it's... It, it, I'm it was a really blank. quick period though. Like he, he did so many yes. films yeah, in yeah, that's a right. very short Especially time Especially in that frame. era. Yeah. yeah. Through the 60s and very quickly moved through different political movements as well. So as you mentioned last time I was here, we, we talked about the period of La Chine and the whole Maoist thing and 
once again you've got this kind of revolutionary wearing a suit and tie you know it's this it's it's not your yeah. average kind of Che Guevara kind of thing happening where he's in the street um you know well he, he did a bit of climbing of the barricades but it almost seems somewhat ridiculous mm-hmm. and likewise now I mean effect, effectively in the image book he's calling for revolution but he's appealing not to the masses but to a very kind of elitist bunch of hardcore cinephiles <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting way to go about things I I can't I- if I'm just imagining what a Goddard film would be that would appeal to the masses, if mm. that's even a possibility. I don't know. That's right. Well, look, I mean... in in his Because he's developed yes. to something that's so different. That's right. I think there are there are varying moments of accessibility, but it's that, that really, it's the accessibility that is really becoming more and more problematic uh, for mainstream yeah. audiences. Um, I may well be a, a Goddard heathen because I love Breathless. I think it's a fantastic film. And I even asked the students <laughs> the other day, why is this film so cool? It's still yeah. so cool after all this time. Um, even though, you know, Godard swiftly moved away from that. But I think also, like, some of his late 60s stuff was really quite fascinating and that that kind of marks the end of the period where you can detect a faint trace of a narrative Mm. and character development. From there, things started getting much more experimental and there's definitely a place for that kind of cinema in the world. Absolutely. Um, But I think it's got to the point where, as one critic said about his latest film, only Godard could have made that film (laughs) and got away with it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's a really good point. Um, Well, I did watch the trailer and... Mm. I could see development in some kind of ideas or at least connections between the Mm. varying film clips that he'd put together. Definitely. Um, And I don't even know whether he... There is some kind of special meaning that he put in it, but whether he wants us to put our meaning into Mm. it. I know that sounds horribly contemporary art, but, (laughs) you know, when I watch his films, even those documentary-style films that were a little bit more out there Mm. that were looking at, like, industry in France, which was was one of the most moving things I've ever seen was the industrial films he's made, Mm. Um, I could still get meaning from just big pylons like for big shots of pylons and you know people working workers Mm. working on sites and you know i just feel like there is a lot more going on underneath definitely and i think yes it's not it's not a random series of images i mean godard is all about the the montage the editing of films then that's the kind of the point of construction that's where you make the film and the the word in french really does kind of have this this notion of putting the film together and Definitely, I think one of the things that uh, that Godard can be, um, you, you know, appreciated for is the fact that he he completely rejects this notion. Like in typical Hollywood films, you're pretty much told what to think, and there's no way around it. You know, you're given a complete kind of moral landscape. Here are the good guys, here are the bad guys, and there's no room to move. Mm. Um, so even though his politics, I must say, is increasingly kind of totalitarian in that there's no escaping the fact that he's got a particular message to get out there, and Chabrol, of course, would be dead set against that notion, yeah. um, you, still, you, you still have some work to do. He's not telling you what to think, how to think. He's giving, once again, this kind of... I, I think it's it, it really is film art. It is it's a it's it's a kind of a um, a canvas that he has put you know kind of abstract impressionistic um, material onto, and it's still up to us to piece those bits and pieces together. Mm. Most definitely. Let's jump a little bit back to Chabrol because I wanted to explore some of the themes that I think he mm. has uniquely been exploring. That sometimes he's been 
not necessarily criticised for, but it's been a point of contest or discussion around his portrayal of um, homosexuality and relationships between same-sex people and also threesomes and, you know... And anything goes. Anything, Mm. yes. And that's not necessarily that surprising in French culture. Mm. Um, But one of the films that is really interesting for that purpose and also La Ceremonie, which we have just been Mm. speaking about, has... All those kind of... Yeah, I think it's suggested. Very suggestive. Mm. And I loved that it was suggested mm. and not explicit because yep. it was so... It would have been massively unnecessary yes. to be explicit in that film. But there is one where it is fairly explicit, which is Le Biche. Mm. Um, and it's kind of translated to the dose or... Like, what is your thought on the on the title of that? Because that's also a little bit... Yeah, it's vague. it's an interesting one um, yeah. because Le Biche does in fact mean the dose, mm. um, but it also happens to be, and I think this is where it's a bit more heavy-handed in this film, but um, uh, Le Biche or Les Biche is actually kind of um, a, a nickname or for lesbian. So oh, it's... Oh, really? I was wondering. There's a bit of a connection to be made there as well. Mm. And... You can't always take what a film director says at face value, but Chabrol reckons that he just introduced that kind of same-sex relationship into the film to make it more interesting and more commercially successful. But <laughs> I don't think we can no. really take that at face value. Um, not a lot not of things you could take him at face value, No, though, I think he's, he's quite... a master manipulator yeah, exactly. <laughs> on and off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Mm. He's like, look over here, this is what it's, what's going to happen, and then bam. Yes, absolutely. The total opposite. Yeah, and he'd be loving every minute of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, when I very briefly re-watched Le Biche, I didn't get to see the whole thing again, mm. but I wanted to refresh my memory and you know even just the opening scene where they're on the bridge and um the young character um she's like drawing this well she's called why because that was just her (laughs) response to what's your name um but she was drawing in chalk this like picture of a doe Mm. like um and so and then we have this beautiful french woman Mm. um frederic who is substantially older and more mature Mm. and um and why is just so hard to gauge yes like and very um unlikable in a way like she's quite um defensive or Mm. you know just like whenever someone tries to engage with her she kind of deflects or tries to start an argument or says i'll Mm. fight you or but then she does the opposite yeah it's interesting isn't it it's a it's a wonderful opening scene that Mm. one because so much can be interpreted from those characters and I, i read one um critique of the film which was um particularly um, interesting in terms of the positioning of the characters there because you've got Frédéric in her big kind of long coat, the dark coat, of course. Colour is very important. And fur. And and fur as well. Uh, And standing, um, so in a position of of domination and the very submissive or relatively submissive at this stage anyway, why, who's who's, um, crouched down on the ground. And um, from that point onwards, we've got a very clear dynamic in the relationship, which is eventually, well... Let's just say it may or may not be overturned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and and a man may chuck a spanner in the works as yes. well, which is tragic. And who are tragic. Jean-Louis Trantignon, he's uh, the expert. He's the go-to token token male in any film. I love of that it. Era. Yeah, he's just, he does weird so well. 
And once again, with that kind of veneer of normality, he's not a particularly bizarre-looking fellow, um, but he just seems to play these roles where underneath that surface there's all sorts of weird stuff going on. Mm. And, um, yeah, he's, he's, you know, he, he has a role to play in this film, but it really is about the, the two women. The women, yeah. exactly, which is mm. what I loved about it yes. when I saw it or probably 10 years ago, I just went, oh, breath of fresh air. Yes, definitely. It's something driven by women, about mm. women, about women's relationships and lives, and but not in a very typical way at all. Mm. Um, I just saw in the book I was reading that Chabrol called Paul, which is the man in this triangle, a man object. <laughs> That's great. Which is excellent. Um, <laughs> and that he's a conduit for the expression of women's complex emotions. Mm. Wonderful. I think Isn't that quite absolutely. Progressive? I think I think for its time too, it was pretty out there. Um, yeah. I remember you saying that you studied that film at, at one stage, and and I can imagine that it would have been considered quite out there for the time. Yes, this um, is nineteen sixty eight. Nineteen sixty eight. So okay. From, in from France, it's very progressive because, yes, as we know, definitely. for women in France in the nineteen sixties, mm. they were still quite behind their female counterparts here and even in America That's on the right. range of issues like contraception, exactly. property, voting. That's right. A lot, a lot of that was still to come mm. in France. So I think. I think it was, you know, as is typical of our artists and filmmakers, just really avant-garde for the time, and quite, you know, quite a, quite a bold statement from from Chabrol as well to go in that direction. Very bold, mm. yeah. So if we're looking at his oeuvre, yes. um, and I'm glad you said that, Amy. Yes, <laughs> and we're looking at, if, you know, picking favourites or just highlighting ones mm. that we think stand out. What would your go-to be? Yeah, I think apart from the ones that we've mentioned, yeah. I think um, other ones that would spring to mind would be um, L'Enfer from the mid-90s, which is another one that I think is in the lineup for, the, is, yeah, yeah. for this retrospective, um, which um, according to Rotten Tomatoes has a 100% critical Whoa. rating, so that's pretty good. Hello. There aren't too many. That's one of his most critically acclaimed works. Yeah. And that's with François Cluzet and Emmanuel Béart, so kind of in their prime as well. Um, and the other one that I, I mentioned indirectly before was one from the late 80s. It's, it's called Mask. So Masks, it kind of says it all. It kind of yeah. gets back to what we've been talking about all the way through. And that's with um, Philippe Noiret as a game show host. And <laughs> you probably would have noticed in, in our late night binge viewing that yes. um, Chabrol doesn't shy away from incorporating television, people often mm. watching television. And he's very aware already of you know, different forms of media and he doesn't, he's quite mocking about it, but realises that people are spending, you know, a lot of time watching television, you know, compared to where we're at now with YouTube, <laughs> things have really exploded on that front. But this is, um, Philippe Noiré plays this uh, kind of corrupt game show host and it's just absolutely fantastic. Um, the, the final scene of that film where he addresses the, the audience through the camera, mm. you know, which is explainable because he's a TV host, uh, is really quite remarkable. And, of course, there's all the kind of crime and intrigue and, once again, the kind of cheesy veneer of um, you know, a television game show is uh, very subtly undone and that kind of interesting mix between subtlety and, you know, a spectacular kind of skewering of, of the, the social class that he's really taking aim at. Yeah, I mean, there's just so many. <laughs> That's right. it's, I think it'd be hard to stumble across a really bad one, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true. I mean, they're they're kind of because he was so prolific. I mean, there are many that kind of get that kind of fall by the wayside, I guess. But but certainly those ones. Um, the other one would be another one that he did with Sandrine Bonner, or Coeur du Mensonge, which I think is. Um, 
I can't recall the English title. I think it's in the Cinematheque lineup, but I'm not too sure. But with Sandrine Bonner, who's who's another you know wonderful actor, who's also capable of of having this kind of um, well, respectfully conventional beauty about her, but she plays really, really edgy characters. Mm. She was the main star of Agnes Varda's um, Vagabond in the mid-80s as well, so this very, very marginal character who just refused to conform. Um, she was essentially a homeless person wandering around France and just every op- opportunity that presented itself for her to um, to become part of conventional society, she rejected. So fascinating, a bit like Isabelle Huppert, um, yeah. who did seven films with Chabrol as well. So That's any wild. of them with Isabelle Huppert in it, I would strongly recommend mm. because she's just an absolute master at, at what we're talking about, this veneer of normality and this, this really kind of seething... Um, underworld in the psyche <laughs> that um, that bursts to the surface at uh, often quite short notice. Yeah, very short notice <laughs> in terms of La Ceremonie. Yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> wow. I actually think that I'm not going to say what happens, but the, thing, the things that happen are spectacularly done, just yes. like so well done yeah. and acted. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, that's often hailed as one of his masterpieces, La Ceremonie. So that's definitely up there as one to check out yeah. during this retrospective. Just go to all three <laughs> sessions. <laughs> like there's, I think it's six films in total. So two yeah. each Wednesday evening yes. at Acme. It's really yeah, it's not a, yeah, it's easy to get to. It's very definitely. affordable. Yeah. And we're very lucky to have it. So lucky. Yeah. And just, I think, and perhaps you might have a, a better understanding given that you're screening these films mm. for students as well that this the way that when they're projected on the big screen it also takes on another quality definitely absolutely i mean these are films made for the big screen um that you know shabal would have had the opportunity to go into television if he wanted to but no these this is definitely cinema yeah (laughs) true cinema absolutely no it's beautiful and um just before we end i was intrigued that i saw the Flowers of Evil, Leffler mm. de Mal, in yeah. his uh, filmography. Yes. What was that about? Because obviously Charles Baudelaire was uh, wrote great yes. poems by the same name. Yeah, that's right. I think it's just indicative of the fact that he wasn't um, he wasn't going to shy away from dealing with some you know heavy literary canons of French culture. Um, so Madame Bovary was another one that we mentioned earlier, mm. and that's no exception. So he he's not afraid of adaptation of trying his hand at these things and. Um, and yes, I think it was. It's just testimony to his, you know, kind of subtly experimental style, kind of pushing himself to engage with material that you know he doesn't fully own. And there's that kind of sense of expectation behind any adaptation that he was, you know, he certainly didn't shy away from. Yeah, it's mm. so great that yes. he had that gusto. Yeah, to <laughs> absolutely, do it. absolutely. And if anyone has read Baudelaire's poems in that um, series or collection, a lot of them do have themes around lesbians and um, lesbos, yes. the place. And it is so, um, even at that time that Baudelaire was writing, it was a really interesting and different way of mm. talking about the experience of gay women. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a fascinating choice for Chabrol as well, who um, I think has a real you know, he's got a real eye for um, for kind of subtle representation of issues that are perhaps not haven't yet been kind of fully embraced by the mainstream at the time of the making of the film. So really, yeah. kind of fulfilling that role of avant-garde artist, pushing pushing yeah. the boundaries. <laughs> so great. 
Andrew, it's once again been such a pleasure and delight to speak with you. you, And I really appreciate your enthusiasm and expertise on French New Wave. Well, likewise. (laughs) Thank you for being a defender of the cause. Oh, I so will any day. Happy to take it up. (laughs) That's great. I've been speaking with Dr Andrew McGregor, who is a lecturer in French studies at the University of Melbourne. Not only does he obviously understand the language, but of French culture, particularly cinema. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.